Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. This morning we are going to walk through uh, 12 verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And um, we're, we're in this series that we're calling Transformational Church. And it's all about how life transformation can happen through the local church if the local church will align itself with the work, with the work of God. And so the, the big question, uh, kind of overarching question of this is what, what kind of environments are necessary for a local church to have in place for life transformation to have good pathways uh, to take place on? And that's a really important question um, because a lot, of, a lot of our Christian journey, especially in the Western culture, has become so individualistic that we think that life transformation is just about me. It's just about me and my life being, being transformed. And we don't think a lot about how my transformation is impacted, touched, and how it touches others. And so we're arguing this point uh, throughout this series is that the local church matters. It's God's plan. Now, I'm not saying to you that you can't be a Christian if you're not part of a local church. But if you're not in a local church and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, there's some incongruency in your life. You're going to be incomplete in some ways because God has designed the fullness of a transformation to take place through a church, through a gathering of God's people. Now, many of you would agree with this statement that believing faith is essential for salvation. I think if you're, you know, if you're a part of this church and you've been here very long at all, you probably believe that or you would have left by now. But we also believe that belonging is essential for life transformation. So the way that I like to, to say this and think about it is belonging is to life transformation as believing is to salvation. It's, it's that important, if you would. Now, if, if we're not connected with other believers, other Christ followers, again, we're, we're just going to be experiencing an incompleteness in our lives. And that's why you almost never see Jesus doing much one-on-one discipling. There was some. There were some moments he was alone answering a question or something like that with somebody. But usually, even that relationship is in the context of a, a group dynamic, two or three others. You always see Jesus taking people that way. And at River Bluff, we believe that. We believe that's the Jesus way, that transformation in Christ flows through the body of Christ. And I know some of you are thinking, well, dude, you're like preaching to the choir because we're the ones that are here. And uh, you, you may be thinking, what, what's up with that? Well, there's a reason for that. And, and we talked a little bit about it last week. There, there are people who, who have been to local churches and they have had some terrible experiences. And they're just kind of afraid. They, they're, they're a little bit leery, you know. And uh, you, you might be a guest with us today. You maybe have been out of church for a while because you got burned really, really bad uh, in another church. And you're just a little, a little anxious about being back in church for the first time. Or maybe you've been here a while and you've been thinking about maybe inching your way in. But there's some, some fear in you. 
I remember um, several years ago at the end of one of our Exploring Church Memberships seminars, um, we, we do coaching and, and we meet with people individually after they have, you know, stayed at the seminar and said, we, you know, we'd like to join. We, we walk through individually or as a couple and I was, I was with this one couple and it was very, very obvious that there was tension. Not between them, but there was just, there was tension over whether we should take this step. And so I just said, I think you guys got some questions. Something seems to be bugging you. What, you know, what, what gives? And the wife is the one that spoke up and she said, well, here's, here's the deal. The last church that we kind of visited in and then kind of took our first steps into, um, we, we filled out a card and said, you know, we would like for somebody to, to visit with us. And so the pastor and two leaders came and, you know, told us about the church and all this kind of stuff. And at some point in the conversation, they asked for our W-2 forms. Because they wanted to help us think about how much we would contribute to that church. And she said, Does, do y'all do stuff like that? And I said, well, not in the first week. We wait till the first month. No, I didn't say that. And that's just one. Now, you know, there, there are some people who have had church experiences that have tremendous pucker factor to them. They're just, they're scary, you know? And we, we need to be aware that that's a reality that people have had bad experiences with churches. I, I grew up in a family where that's a reality, so I have a sensitivity for those who have struggled in the local church. Uh, my dad uh, really felt like he got burned by some leaders in a church. He had given uh, his life in, in a way to, to a project there, and uh, some things happened, and so we became an unchurched family for a season, you know, in our lives. And uh, so I, I get that. I get the pain that, that, that it could cause someone. And we've got to be real about that, 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 that that's happened. And, you know, p people have all kinds of experiences, bad experience in churches. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they leave churches for all kinds of things. Do you know statistically what the number one reason is people leave a church? It's because... Somebody in leadership did something they didn't like, didn't agree with. L leadership, usually it's aimed at the pastor. Did something that they didn't like or didn't, you know, said something they didn't, or didn't do something they wanted, you know, something like that. And so, so they left the church. And this idea of, of leadership, you know, sometimes it's they, they say the leaders didn't understand me over there or they didn't connect with my life or, you know, again, it may have been a wounding. So, so many things um, that, that it, it, it could possibly be. And, you know, some of us would hear some of those stories and think, dude, grow up, you know, come on. Uh, but it, the reality is that that's what's going on. So, you know, maybe you're here today and you hope to just kind of slip into church and be invisible. Maybe you're here today and maybe you're back for a second time and, but you're still hoping nobody radars in on you and, uh, you know, you just, you came because you wanted to maybe sit for a while, maybe heal some. And I want you to hear us say we understand that. We get that. And I think this is a safe place to, to do that. But I also want you to hear me say on top of that is, if you stay here long enough, 
there is an expectation that you'll dive in to the river. That you'll plug in. That you'll, you'll realize that God has healed your hurt to a point where he's calling you up again into the battle. In, into service. And, uh, you know, given all that, we need to kind of ask the question, you know, why is it that churches have leadership problems? I got an answer for it. Look around the room. Just look around the room. What do you see? You see people. We have leadership problems because we're all people. You know? And people are messy. Every last one of us, you know, is messy. And so where there are people, there's potential conflict. I don't care, you know, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be preferences. There's going to be all kinds of things. The list can go on and on and on. But in the book of First Thessalonians, this letter that Paul has written to the church back there, he points out in the section of scripture we're going to look at today, what I believe is for a transformational church, a, 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 a pattern of what its leaders should look like and really what a leadership culture should, what should flow out of a leadership culture. Because transformational churches have leaders that uh, are, uh, have lives worthy of imitating. Transformational church leaders, those are, those are people who have lives that are worthy of imitating because they're trying their best to imitate the life of Jesus and they're trying to create a culture of leadership that way. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to kind of look under the hood at leadership at River Bluff Church. And um, I, I've, I've said this to a couple people this morning already. I have never, um, I've never had to bring a message that was as aimed at me as this one is. And so I'm going to tell you up front, part of, part of what I'm asking you today to think about uh, in the coming weeks and months and years um, is I want to be held accountable to the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, I believe all of our leaders do. I think all of our, our ministers, all of our staff, I think all of our elders, our deacons, we, we, th this is something we need to set the bar for. And this passage deals with leadership at every level, whether you're just a, a leader who's just leading yourself or whether you're at the top of an organization and you're leading it, somewhere in between. Um, whether you're, uh, you know, you're, whether you're the pastor or a pastor or a deacon or elder, small group leader, you lead a ministry team um, or you're a parent you're a Christian parent in this church leading kids leading your family there's, there's something in what we're going to look at today uh, for all levels uh, of leadership and when I look at this passage there are, there are six qualities of, of transformational church leaders life giving leaders that I want to I point out today because the reality is leaders leave leaders have impact Leaders leave a, a footprint, an imprint on, on the lives of people. And it would be to God that in churches they always left, you know, a positive sign. But far too often there, there is a negative sign. And, uh, you know, what, what struck me when I read the, these 12 verses is four times in those 12 verses, Paul's writing this letter back to the, the believers in Thessalonica. And he says, you know. I mean, he tells them most of the things that he's going to tell them, he says, you know this. 
You, you, you know that this is true. He says it in verse 1. He says it in verse 2. He says it in verse 5 and verse 11. Um, he, he points out these are things that you already, you intuitively know. The spirit in you tells you this. And the, in verse 1, the Greek word there, haltus, is the, the first time it's translated, it, it's emphatic. And it's basically translated, ESV says, you yourself know. It's an emphatic kind, kind of knowing. And what this is telling me is that Paul's saying this was kind of intuitive. Intuitive. This is something you know. Paul wasn't trying to, he didn't come with some, you know, slick marketing kind of thing. He just says, you know. You know, in, uh, in verse 9, he says, you remember. Uh, in verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. So, multiple times he's pointing out that these are things that you know that you're connected to that you, you really do get. He's kind of reminding us. So, right out of the gate, wh what this tells me is that as a church... Looking at our leadership culture, these are these should be some things that we go, yeah, yeah. We we need to be seeing that in the lives uh, of our leaders. And uh, so again, th this this was, you know, at me today as much as it is anybody. Paul begins his letter in this section, leaning into um, lots of things here, and uh, it, it, he says that you know my motives. He tells them, you, you, you knew this. You knew the example I left. And, and as, as we dive into this, I want you to see that that, that was Paul's really message. You know these things. You, you, you know this. And the first thing that I see, you know, that we should think about as leaders, whether pastors or people who teach or lead ministry teams, is, uh, is the, these, these six characteristics of life-giving leaders. And the first one is this. Life-giving leaders are candid leaders. Candid leaders. Now, what I mean by that is not what I grew up thinking candid meant. Um, when I grew up, I grew up thinking candid meant secret. I know that's almost like the exact opposite. But it's because of a television show that was popular in the 60s um, that my family watched every time called Candid Camera. Smile! You're on candid camera, you know? And so, for me, the word candid meant secret, meant hidden. There's, a, you know, something hiding watching you kind of thing. Those of you that, those, how many of you remember candid camera? Have seen it? Okay, those of you who did not raise your hand, it's because you're too young, I know. And so, here's what I want you to think of. I want you to think of the show Punked, but kinder. <laughs> much, much kinder. Okay? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the setup was they would put people in kind of a funky, awkward situation and, and then watch how they would respond. And, you know, their, their response was candid. It was just off. The, it was who they really were. It was the way that, you know, because they didn't think they were being watched. It was a very candid, a, a, very, a very frank, a very honest kind of truthful, sincere response. And that's what, when I say candid, that's, that's what I'm talking about. You know, it's kind of, you're in the moment and, you know, you don't think a camera's on you, you don't think anybody's watching, but you're that person. That's who you really are. You're that same person no matter what. And, and brothers and sisters, my goodness, if there's ever a time in our culture when our culture is crying out for people who are integrated like that, who are real, the real deal, that their message lines up with their life mission, you know, and the way that they live their lives. It, it, is, it is our culture. Far too often in the last several years we have seen played out time after time after time again people who are saying one thing and doing something else. And it's, 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 it's tearing in our society. If you don't believe me, just think of Thursday. 
you know, the Kavanaugh hearings. And it doesn't matter who you believed at the end of the day. That doesn't matter. The truth is, if you're candid in your life and, and, and leading your own life, life will go well. You, you may get falsely accused, but there, there will come a day, if you're walking in hiddenness, when it's going to come out in the light. God's word says it's all going to get revealed one day. And so I believe that this is one of the greatest opportunities for us as Christ followers to lead integrated lives and, and do it candidly so that no matter who we, uh, you know, where we are, it doesn't matter where we are. Who we are is what matters and we're always that same person everywhere. You know, there, there are places where you can go into neighborhoods and interview neighbors and, you know, maybe ask them about that person that wears, you know, that shirt, I love my church. And I'm not knocking the shirts, but, you know, in their neighborhood, they're known as that Christian or maybe that Christian leader at the church. They think of themselves that way. But man, they're the nasty neighbor. You know, their, their, their life is incongruent with their t-shirt. And, and we just need to be mindful of that because we need to be reminded that everywhere we go, somebody's watching us. You know, I, I'm, I'm more aware of that than ever. And it is a built-in accountability system for me. I think I told you guys this story maybe. Um, but back in February, I got really reminded of this in a huge way. Uh, we had been out of town uh, over the weekend. And uh, Kathy and I stayed over Monday. And we were in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Well, when I got back on Tuesday, uh, one of the leaders of the homeschool group that meets here on Tuesday... Uh, came to me and said, Joe, one of the moms um, in the homeschool group, has some kids here, told me that she saw Pastor Joe with a woman in Black Mountain. Not with his wife, Kathy, but with, a, by the way, that woman was my wife, Kathy. Okay? Um, but the, the words that she used was with a woman. Because she didn't know Kathy. Now, the, the member knew why we were up there. We had been doing a marriage retreat with, with Pastor Terry and Tammy. And uh, we stayed over an extra day. And we were just kind of exploring, walking the streets in Roman uh, Black Mountain. Apparently, is where she saw us. And, uh, but she didn't know that was my wife. And I just got reminded pretty quickly, I can run, but I can't hide. <laughs> you know? You can't either. There, there are eyes on you. And we've got to be reminded of that, that our life needs to be, what you see is what you get. Your, your life needs to be, be candid that way. Paul said this in verse 1. He said, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming was not in vain. That, that our coming mattered. It made a difference. It, you know, New Living Translation says it wasn't a failure. Don't, don't let your, your coming, your, your, your life be, be a failure. Let it be lived out candidly. You know, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was powerful. The gospel took off. There was a qualitative value there because Paul's life was integrated so that the truth that he spoke, spoke out of a foundation of a life that was true. It was just, it was who he was. One of the things that I'm really excited about 
in this season of ministry is I'm getting to lead a group on Sunday evenings um, through a study called The Gospel and we're thinking about recovering the original power of Christianity um, and one of the things we're doing as a, as a group and it's not too late to get in if you want to come be a part of the journey you can show up at 5 and we'll catch you up but the, the, one of the things I'm excited about is we're going to over this 8 week period we're going to read through the four gospels together that's just part of, part of our journey. Over eight weeks, we're going to read through all of the four Gospels. And, and I'm excited about that. One of the things that already just hit me uh, was in chapter 7 of Matthew uh, this week as I was reading through. And uh, we get, you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the people who were listening, are, the Bible says they were amazed. They were amazed at, at Jesus' teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Not as their religious leaders. Oh my goodness. Man, that was a leadership smackdown right there. You know, about, about those, because their lives weren't integrated. You get to the end. I, I fast forward a little bit. I knew kind of the ending. But when you get to the end in, in Matthew 23, 24, and 25, Jesus is nailing the religious leaders. Talking about how their lives don't match their teaching. And this, this was a big deal to, this is a big deal to people then and today. Is that our lives are congruent. That there's, there's this candor, there's this realness uh, about the lives of those who follow Jesus. And Jesus, is, Jesus did that. His life was integrated that way. And so transformational leaders, you know, are candid. They're candid with, you know, speaking the truth because it, it just flows from their lives. You know, one, one of the th- I, I talked with someone at the end of one of our services not long ago who told me that they had recently begun making their way back to church, that they had been away for a long time, and that one of the things they felt overwhelmed with, no matter who had taught that day, they even talked about having been in one of the Bible studies, that no matter who was teaching around here, it felt like God was just opening truth to their mind. Uh, they had been disconnected from truth for so long that it was like a whole new world had been exposed to them. And I thought that was like the biggest compliment that you could you know, pay to our, our, our ministry here is that when people show up, what they're hearing, what they're experiencing, what they're seeing lived out is reality, truth. Uh, both in the message and, and you know, in, in the lives of, of people. And he just felt like that was going on all the time. And, you know, I just told him, I said, the, the more you seek God, the more the truth of God will overwhelm your life. The more you seek God, the more that will be your reality and you won't be given over to the deception and the lies that you have been fed and living in. You know, the, the, that was the point for me is that, that candid leaders aren't afraid of the truth. They're not afraid to speak it and, and say it because they know the source of their authority isn't them. You know, if you're a leader of a small group or a Bible study or you lead a class or whatever, you know, the authority that you have to lead and, and speak truth isn't, doesn't come from you. It comes from God. It comes from the Word of God. That's, that's where it flows from. And you just need to be confident of that, that it's not your words. Candid leaders get that. They, they understand that truth. A second quality that Paul points out about these life-giving leaders is they are resolute. 
Life-giving leaders are, are, are resolute. Churches uh, that are, are transformational churches have life-giving leaders who are resolute. And I, I, I'm just amazed at this little phrase. Paul says uh, in verse 2, he said, We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. And there's that line again, as you know. And then he says, but we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel to, to you. I don't know if you know this story. You can go back to Acts chapter 16, 17 um, for the details of it. But basically, uh, Paul and Silas, some of you remember this story, Paul and Silas in Philippi, um, and Timothy was there, but Paul and Silas got drug out into the street. They got beaten mercifully, unmercifully. They got uh, put in jail. Some of you will remember the story about the Philippian jailer coming to Christ. There was a kind of a miracle. The, the, the shackles fall off of Paul and Silas as they're singing and worshiping God and um, the jailer goes to kill himself and they say you know because all the prisoners were running out and he'd say don't do that we're not going anywhere um, and so he, he prays to receive Christ his family comes to Christ great great thing but the, the believers when they get out of jail the believers in Philippi said we got to get y'all out of town they're going to kill you so Paul and Silas leave Timothy stays uh, there in Philippi Paul and Silas leave and they make their way to uh, Thessalonica and in Thessalonica, after about three or four weeks, about the same thing happens again. And uh, they, they have, to, have to get out of town. Um, and it, it becomes this kind of difficult thing. But Paul is saying, we, were resol- we didn't quit. We, we, we took this in Philippi, and so we came straight to Thessalonica, and, and we, had to, we went through it all again. They, they were resolute in their resolve to, to follow Christ. You know, and I read about, I read about the, the beatings that Paul took for his faith, the, the, just the, all that he went through. And I wonder about my life, you know. What would I do in, in, in the face of that kind of persecution? You know, the worst thing that has happened to me in ministry, I've, I've you know, we did some evangelism training years ago and we'd go to door to door and you know a few people would shut the door in your face um, the, the, the most afraid I've ever been in ministry is when we were over at Midland Park um, I was working with a couple and uh, the, the mother of the lady I was working with hated the man she was with and called and said she was coming up to the church to kill him and I believed her you know, um, we, uh, we closed the blinds, we called the police, we hid in the middle of the building, you know. Um, I, I was afraid. And the rest of us, we, you know, we were, we were scared of that. And I, I just, but I don't know what real persecution for my faith looks like. Now they're, like, like Paul does, you know. They, they, these guys, he, he took being flogged within an inch of his life, 39 lashes. I mean, just all these kinds of things. And, and Paul says... So that just happened, but when we got to your town, we weren't afraid. We were still resolved that we were going to keep doing what God had called us to do. Now, in our day, in our time, most of us are not going to have to deal with being dragged out of our houses, dragged, you know, somewhere and thrown in the prison. Now, there are countries where that's still happening, though, in the world today. You know that, right? Where they're being killed, martyred for their faith. Um, I don't know if you read this, but uh, the Coptic Christians in, in Egypt are up for the Nobel Peace Prize because of their peaceful way of pursuing their faith in the middle of unrelentless persecution. They're just, they're being murdered daily. 
uh, for their faith, and they're they're just they're they're not retaliating, and uh, so they're up for that. The, the church in China, uh, pastors in China right now are un, undergoing incredible persecution uh, at the hands of the government. Just just incredible things that are going on, and uh, that's not true in our country, but. In our culture, there are some ways that we need to be resolute, that we need to be courageous, that we need to stand firm. And I think one of the greatest ones has to do with this book, has to do with the whole counsel of God. That, that you and I need to stand firm on, on the whole teachings of God in a culture that is seeking to erode it, that, is, that, that seeks to try to redefine what it means, that seeks to reshape it so that it fits our personal uh, choices or our personal lifestyles, you know. And courage, uh, resolve demands that we stand firm on the whole word of God, on, on, on the full counsel of God. We, 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 need to, we need to stand in that, in what God's word is saying. But that also means that we need to stand firmly against those who take a legalistic approach to faith and try to make it say things that it doesn't say. You know, we need to, we need to be as resolute in grace as we do in, in truth. There are people, there are Christians who take strong, hard-nosed stands on things that the Bible doesn't speak about. And we need to be careful of that. And we need to stand and resolve against those things that are just preference and not matters of true faith. Things like styles of music and worship. There are some people that will tell you if you worship God with a drum set, man, that's devil music. If you read, you know, a Bible that's not got a K in the start of the translation, you know, there's a, you know, that's not from God. And they, they fight about this. They draw lines in the sand. Silly stuff. You know, that the Bible itself does not address the way they say it does. You know, things about uh, a, a drink of wine with a meal or playing cards or, 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 or dancing. And they, they set these standards up and say, you know, if you're a Christian and you're doing this, that's fleshly. And God's word doesn't teach that. Well, we need to stand against that stuff too. We need to stand in the wholeness of truth. And it takes courage to do that in a culture that, as, as the, the man I was talking to earlier talked about, is filled with lies and deception. They're, because they believe it to be true, but it's just, it's lies. And again, that's a, a, a big topic. We could stay there, but we, we need to move on. Third, transformational churches, we find life-giving leaders who are, are faultless leaders. They're candid, they're resolute, and they're faultless. Now, faultless does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean perfect. It means that, you know, th they are living their lives in such a way that you're not going to be able to just, you know, find them filled with fault. In verse 3, Paul writes, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. There's, there's three traits about this faultless characteristic of leadership. And the first one is they're free from error. They're, they're, they're free from error. And I think Paul here is talking about orthodox doctrine. I think he's saying what you believe about the faith actually matters. Paul knew that doctrinal truth was important. 
It was important for making good decisions. It was important for leading. It's important for providing counsel for other people. It's important about developing your own personal character uh, issues. See, the, the truth is, anywhere that you find the church compromising on doctrine, you will eventually find it compromising on almost every area of life. Once it starts on, on this doctrine. And, and, and follow its leaders, they, they, they seek, they constantly seek to be true in orthodox doctrine. Another area that Paul says is that a faultless leader stands in is that they're free from impure motives. Faultless leaders are free from impure motives. Uh, verse 3 says, Our appeal does not spring from error um, or impurity. New Living Translations talks about it, you know, with, without deceit or impure motives. And, and Paul was familiar with people uh, who were spreading their worldview with, from impure motives. In, in Paul's day, there were lots of traveling philosophers, e evangelists, if you would, for other worldviews, and they would use all kinds of things to get people's attention. And Paul basically writes back to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, you knew. You, you, you know that my motive was pure. You saw it lived out from me. And so I think he was speaking about his own character. I think that he was saying that because he knew that there were a lot of people traveling from place to place who wanted something from people. They were looking for something from people. Uh, sometimes it was uh, sexual in nature. It was all kinds of things. And Paul says faultless leaders have pure motives. A third thing about these uh, faultless leadership is it's free from deception. There's no trickery in it. He says, that, you know, in verse 3, it says, there was no attempt to deceive. In, in other words, what Paul is saying, you know, in my ministry, I didn't make promises based on some human scheme in order to get people to respond to the gospel of Jesus. See, one of the reasons that Paul's ministry was so fruitful is because it was clear. He was very, very clear on what it meant to follow Jesus. You must understand you are a sinner. You are separated from God by your sin. You must turn away from that sin. And you must give your life to Jesus. I mean it was just, Paul was just very, very clear. And that's, that's one of the reasons people responded favorably in a, in a culture where everything was so unclear. The gospel message was clear. Reject sin. Choose Jesus. Choose his life and his teachings. And sometimes I think in our culture, in an effort to extend grace, and most of you that know me know that I love the grace of God. I mean, I just, I, I, I love the grace of God. But sometime in our culture, in the church culture, we will, we will kind of shove truth under the rug just so people feel good. That's not grace. It's not biblical grace. And sometimes it's easy to forget that the gospel has some bad news before you get to the good news. You've got to understand that reality. That there's good news there. It's the most beautiful good news in the world. But you've got to know that you need it. And to know that you need it, you've got to know that you're lost and that you're far away from God. But that God, and I love this passage that tells us, but God who is rich in mercy... See, that's, that's the, you're a sinner. You're a mess. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus, for you. 
He has a marvelous plan for you. He's at work in it for you. But we need to faultless leaders have to be have to be really clear on that. And, and we we need to be careful because uh, it, it can it can get goofy. And sometimes people push stuff out there with kind of impure pure motives. And sometimes they use deceit. I haven't done this in a long, long time, but there were, there were days when I would stay up late and every now and then I would channel surf and I would stop on some of those late night evangelists. And they would promise people stuff. And they would say things like, if you would send in X amount of money, I'm going to send you this rag I prayed over. Or this water I spit in or whatever. You know, um, this something that uh, you know if you do if you send me this I'll send you that and you'll get back tenfold blessing guaranteed folks that is garbage that is not gospel now I'm, I'm not appointed by God to judge the fullness of ministries like that but I'm telling you that component that's deceit that, that, that's trickery now I'm not going to start naming names or anything like that but you need to avoid that. There, there's no truth in that. And, and life transforming leadership, life giving leadership avoids that kind of deceit. No, no attempt to deceive. That's a faultless leader. A fourth leadership quality that Paul points out in this letter. He says life giving leaders are commission leaders. Verse 4 says this. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. They're commissioned, life-giving leaders are commissioned leaders. They, they understand that they're, they've been approved by God. God, God has tested them. In, in the Greek language, that word approved there also gets translated some, sometimes as an assessor, somebody who's able to clearly assess the value of something. Um, like if, if, you, uh, if you brought a ring to me and told me it was a, you know, whatever, carat, carat diamond, and it was actually zirconia or whatever that stuff's called, you know, I wouldn't know the difference. You know, I, I, I'm not an assessor of diamonds. But if you take it to a specialist, you know, somebody who studied that, and somebody that, that's the, they're going to pull out their little ocular thing, you know, they're going to look at it and say, this is fake. You know, or this is, this is the real deal. And, and this is what Paul is saying is that uh, leaders... Life-giving leaders, leaders in, in transformational churches, understand that they, their ministry flows because it's been approved by God. They know that they've been commissioned by God himself. They know that any ministry, that anything that good that flows through their leadership is, is from God himself. And I, I, If you're under a leader whether it's a small group leader or an elder or a pastor who doesn't believe that they've been commissioned by God, I, I want to suggest that you may need to be careful about following them. And here's why. Because of this thing called life. Life is messy. And the, the truth is, people who aren't sure they've been called in some way by God, there's going to be constant confusion and inner contradiction. And eventually, where confusion and contradiction reign, compromise comes. It, ju it just flows out of that. 
And so you need to be careful about that. A, a, a leader that you're following that doesn't have a sense that God has called them to do this it, at some level. Not that they're, they're perfect in it all the time, but they understand, God, God's put me here. Because that helps us move through all kinds of things. And the truth is, as a leader, whether you're leading your family, or whether you're leading uh, your, just yourself, or whether you're leading, you know, at the top of an organization, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be challenged. You know, in the church, if you're a leader in the church, you're going to be challenged by your brothers and sisters sometimes. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful sometimes. You know? The, the, the culture is going to challenge you to be something, all kinds of things, other than what you believe God has called you to be. People are going to, you know, nibble you to death. They're going to point out all kinds of little things. Because every leader that I know of in the church has faced that. You know, has faced that kind of thing. If you're, if you're going to be in ministry, those kinds of things are going to come. You're going to have to face those. And you're going to have to constantly go back to knowing that you've been commissioned by God. That you've been called by God to do this. So life-giving leaders, they're leaders who are candid and resolute and faultless. They're, 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 they know they're commissioned by God. And then they're, they're authentic. Life-giving leaders, Paul points out here, are authentic leaders. In verses 5 and 6, we read, For we never came with words of flattery, you know, he, he says, and you know this, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands because we were apostles of Christ. And again, Paul is, he's talking about the authenticity of the life of a leader. And he says there's three things that uh, point to this. The first thing in, in the life of an authentic leader is they will not use flattery. There'll be no flattery coming from them. Now, flattery is when you use words um, no longer just to give encouragement. Now you're using words to try to get people to do what you want them to do. Flattery is, is beyond encouragement. Flattery is, is uh, you know, you're trying to manipulate. Now, I believe Christian leaders should be some of the most encouraging people on the planet. I, I think we ought to try to encourage people. But we have to be careful not to use our words for the purpose of just trying to get people to do what we want them to do. I think all leaders need to be very, very careful of this. Paul says in the life of a leader that's going to be life-giving, flattery will not exist. There's, there's no room for that. He also goes on to say there, there's no greed. He says, for which we came with, uh, with words not of flattery, uh, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. And there's, there's this picture of the life of someone worth following. Is there, 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 greed is absent. There's this absence of greed and their lives are focused on, on others. There's an otherness about their lives, not just about themselves. And folks, this, is just, this isn't just about money. Money obviously plays a big role in this where greed's concerned. But there are people who are greedy for power. There are people who are greedy for, for your admiration because there's a hole in their heart and they're trying to fill it with something else. There, there are people who are greedy for all kinds of things. And it plays out in the way they lead. And Paul is saying there's no room for that in the life of a life-giving, authentic leader. Paul also says in, authentic, in an authentic leader's life, there's no room for people-pleasing. There's just no room for people-pleasing. Uh, authentic leaders are not concerned 
about pleasing people. They have one aim of pleasing and that is God. They just, they just want to please God. And Paul, Paul in this passage said, look, we could have made, we could have made demands on you. Dude, we were apostles. You know, he could have just kind of, he kind of played the apostle card. He said, we didn't do that. We didn't make any demands on you. We, we could have been more of a burden. We could have called out those kinds of things, that kind of respect. But we, we weren't into that. We weren't trying to get you to be pleased with us. That, that wasn't the deal because what, what, we, what we were concerned about was what, what would God think? And see, when, when you're not worried about pleasing people, you, you go through your day knowing that, you know, if at the end of the day, you're able to end it and say, I think I please God today. Then you know no matter what happened here or where you work or, or in anywhere, no matter what the outcome was, if you know you were pleasing to God, the pressure falls off. Because you're not concerned about it. Paul knew that. He lived that way. I, I think personally, and it may be because I experienced this, this is one of, in, in this area, uh, this would be probably my greatest um, uh, place where I would be tempted. It's to please people. Now God's given me a lot of victory there, but I'll just tell you, that's one of my struggles. And I've seen it in the lives of a lot of leaders. People pleasing. It's just a great, great temptation. And you can't, you can't please people and please God. It's not going to happen all the time. And so, you know, one of the ways that if you're saying, Joe, how can, can I pray for you? Pray, pray for that. Pray that I would be that, that authentic kind of leader who, you know, isn't, doesn't struggle with that. Doesn't give in to that. Not that I don't struggle, but that I don't give in to, to trying to, to please people. Yeah. In, in fact, I would say all six of these that we're dealing with today, if you're saying, Joe, what can I pray with? Pray, pray all six of these for me. Pray, pray, if you're saying about leaders in our church, pray all six of these for leaders in our church, all of us who, who lead at some level. Pray that these things would be true. In our church, if you're praying for other churches and their leaders, pray, pray these six things. The sixth one is this. Is transformational churches... Have life-giving leaders who are concerned leaders. Concerned leaders. In verses 7 through 12, Paul uses a couple of visuals to help us think of what a concerned leader looks like. And he, he talks about a mother and he talks about a father. And what that tells me is sometimes spiritual leadership is paternal in its nature. There's a, a kind of a maternal kind of love, a connection, you know. It talk, he talks about a mom coming alongside and being tender. He talks about a dad, you know, with the exhortation and encouragement of a dad that's saying, come on, you know, you're, you're better than what's going on in your life right now. Let's get out of that ditch. Um, it, it's those, those two images. And this is a, a picture of character qualities that, that all leaders need to have, no matter what level you're leading at. And that shows that you're concerned. So concerned leaders, first of all, have a personal touch. Concerned leaders seek to have a personal touch. Paul, Paul talked about this in verses 7 and 8. He said, we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother, we took care. We were being, uh, uh, there was this uh, affectionately desire to be with you. We were ready to share our lives with you. There, there was a personal dimension to his ministry. And I think any leader worth following needs to have that 
that personal dimension in ministry. Now, in a church our size, I will admit that sometimes I feel like I, I can't be personal with everybody. I can't know everybody's stories intimately in, in every detail. I want to. I, I try to. I try to keep up with through, through praying and those kinds of things. But what, what I've decided I have to try to do is be personally connected in the moment. When I'm, when I'm with somebody, to try to give them, you know, my full attention a, a, as much as I can. Realizing there's a limitation, and I'm probably going to, you know, get into some trouble with some of you who think, well, he wasn't personal with me yesterday. I, I'm sorry, you know. Um, I, 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 I long to be. And one of, the, one of the things I love about our staff and our elders is I know that that's the desire of their heart. They, they want to be personal. They want to they have that intimate connection with, with you, with, with people. They care. They're, they're, they're actually concerned, you know. I, I've been in, in ministry environments where, you know, I've, I've heard people say something like this. I love the ministry, but I can't stand the people. Okay. Well, I mean, what do you do with that? You know. Um, see there, there's there, there, I've been in conferences where people talk about how to not get too personally involved there are people who that, that's kind of their thing but I think God's word calls leaders to care personally you know to care about you individually that you matter to God a second kind of piece of this uh, of a concerned leader. They're also marked by hard work. Leaders are, are marked by hard work. Le- leaders, leaders aren't lazy, you know. Um, verse 9 says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day. Paul is saying that work in the kingdom of God in ministry, uh, work at being a leader is, is hard work. You've got to roll up your sleeves. You know, I, I, again, I... Um, I know I'm going to get in trouble personally here, uh, but I, I think leaders, uh, whether you're at the top of the organization or you're just leading yourselves, I, I, think, I think we need to sometimes get into the things that we don't do. I, I've, I've heard some people say, I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't, you know, set up chairs or take down chairs or set up tables. And I don't, I don't really get that. Um, now, I do get that I can't spend all of my time running around putting up chairs and taking them down. I can't spend all of my time, you know, doing it. It takes me 15 to 20 hours of work in God's Word to do a message. And I know some of you are thinking, you probably need to spend more time, Joe. Um, okay. You know, we could argue that point. Um, but it, it takes me, it takes, I invest that kind of time weekly. Uh, for, for messages and, and other, you know, in, in leading. So it, it's, I, I, I know I can't do all those other things. And, uh, but leaders need to be willing to jump in and take out the trash. You know, we do, we, leaders need to be sacrificial servants that way. And I get, I'm concerned about leaders who make statements about what they won't do. You know, uh, uh, things they won't do. Lastly, and this kind of brings us to an end today, concerned leaders, Paul says, are marked by a faithful example. In verse 10, he says, you were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our content, our conduct, excuse me, towards you. I'm thinking, 
I've never been able to stand up here and say that. I want to. I mean, that, that, is, that is a person who is assured of the way that they have behaved in the presence of their brothers and sisters consistently. To be able to, to, be able to write that in a letter and say, you know, and, and this, this kind of points back to that imagery of a mom and dad, you know, the influence, being faithful. Parents, please know this. You may try to teach your kids with your words, but they're going to remember what you do longer than they remember what you say. Especially if there's incongruency between the two. They, we need as leaders to be faithful in our example. In the way that we're living out the things that we say Jesus teaches us. Jesus is doing in us. We, we've got to be faithful. And that's why as, as pastor of River Bluff... And one who gets to speak for some of our other leaders, our elders, our other ministerial staff, or all of our staff, our deacons, I, I would just ask you to pray. Pray for us. I mean, if you look at that list, you know we need it. You know, you know I need this, whether it's your small group leader, your Bible study teacher, whomever. These are qualities that are needed at every level of leadership. And if you've been called to, to, to lead, and I believe everyone in this room has, in some way to steward their influence, we need to pray this for ourselves and each other. Let's pray together. Father God, we, uh, we come giving you thanks, Lord, for your, your goodness in our lives. And, and God, we, we, we come thanking you that you have entrusted us with influence and you've called us to steward it well so we ask for your help now God we ask that these qualities would be alive in us that they would come alive in us and God I, I'm just I'm standing before your people asking you Holy Spirit to stir in their hearts to pray these for me and then to hold me accountable God help me Help us, help our leaders, help our elders, our, our staff, God, our, our deacons, our team leaders, our teachers, God, at every level. Help us, Father. And Lord God, I, I, I pray, and I, I pray knowing this, that as we seek to walk with you, as we seek to give our hearts fully over to you, Lord, you will make us into life-giving leaders. So Father, we come in this moment we come wanting you to have our heart, our, our whole heart, God. We want to be wholehearted for you. Maybe you're here today and for the very first time that the gospel clarity that God loves you, you matter to him. But you've got to turn from sin to, to receive him, to follow him with your whole heart. And today you just want to make that decision. In a moment when we sing... Take my heart. God wants to do that for you. He wants you to give it to him. And you can do that just simply by saying, Lord, I forsake, I, I forsake my sin. I forsake my life apart from you. And I choose you. I choose life your way, God. And if you mean that, the Bible says you'll be saved. You can do that in this next moment. Father, we all come now. We come wanting 
God, to give you our heart, wanting you to, to take our heart. We, we, we want you to know, God, that the core of who we are is yours so that you will transform us into life-giving leaders so that River Bluff can be the transformational church that you see it as. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.